It's the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, our final episode of Punk Rock Month 23. I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this week we put the reps on PRM 23 with a band that we both are fascinated by, the one and only Plasmatics. One, two, one, two, fuck you! True, 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 Ray. They are a special band that may not ever get the full credit they deserve. But they shook shit up. Seriously, more than most bands. They fucking scared the shit out of people. The police showed up at their shows regularly. The plasmatics blew up cars on stage. They used chainsaws to slice guitars in half and big fucking sledgehammers to smash TVs on stage. The Plasmatics were aggressive. They were confrontational musically and in presence with their audience at live shows. The goal was to make people uncomfortable and make a statement. All art is political and the Plasmatics were that and so much more. But before we talk about the band, we have to talk about where the Plasmatics came from, how they began. And it all starts with Rod Swenson. He was the brainchild behind the Plasmatics, as well as the creator of Times Square's most outrageous sex show, which has a large part in this story, especially the early part. And to get us to the band is a story that is absolutely fucking bonkers. It's brilliant. It's well thought out. It's well executed. And as my son would say, cuckoo bananas. No lie. So spill already. To start, we need to know who Rod Swenson is. Yes, we do. So who is Rod Swenson? Mm-hmm. Rod Swenson was born in 1945 and at the early age began a love of painting. He earned a scholarship to the Brooklyn Museum, studying at a place called the Art Students League as a teenager. In 1967, Rod Swenson received his BFA in painting from the University of Denver. In 1969, he received his master's degree from Yale, and he was known to piss off the faculty with his avant-garde and wild political concepts. Then he discovered granola on the West Coast and started the Good Shepherd Cereal Company to become the first to stock mass-produced granola in the East Coast supermarkets. He sold the company in 73 to Sovex Foods and then joined the Sunshine Park nudist camp in New Jersey. And there he created the All Bear Beauty pageant. And Don Imus of Radio Legend hosted one of the All Bear Beauty pageants. And at that same time, Rod became involved with the underground music scene of New York City, CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, and more. And he started shooting videos for some of the emerging punk groups in New York City, like the Dead Boys, the Ramones, Blondie. And he was also the first promoter to put on a Patti Smith show in an actual theater-sized venue in New York City. Man, you're blowing my mind here. I knew he was a pretty heavy guy when I started doing my research, but man... And his later life, when he started doing research with universities as an educator, is even crazier. But that's not part of this story. That's for another episode at some point. But he was also looking for a place to produce experimental theater with repertory company. And Times Square was that place. The venue he chose was a place called Show World, which was a newly opened, multi-leveled supermarket of sex in Times Square. Isn't that the kind of place where you put quarters in to keep the wind? 
window open kind of thing? Yeah, I think it is. And I think they have the sex shops and the video stores and all of that. Right, right. Multi-floor like a Tower Records. So he called this show Captain Kink's Sex Fantasy Theater. This show combined old world burlesque with some rougher sections that ended in scenarios of live sex on stage. The format was fast-paced. There were short vignettes with erotic themes. And these shows were practiced and rehearsed and well-executed, often naked. For example, there was an act called Dr. Marks, which I read about in the Rialto report. Dr. Marks was a puppet with a realistic genitals that ejaculated liquid all over the crowd. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do we have a predecessor to Guar? Holy shit, man. We do. And Swenson explained it this way. It's a total imbalance of values and pure hypocrisy for America to condone and permit a brutal and violent exhibition like prize fighting while sex on stage in all its forms is one of the most important and beautiful things in life. And until people in general and society at large achieve public consciousness, we are living a lie. Then in 1976, he met this woman, Michelle Kennedy. She was a performer, a dancer who changed the theater drastically. He and his lady went to go see her at a show with some other people. And she had multiple members of the audience perform oral sex on her and have sex with her on stage as well. Monica did like she did great because the shows were sold out and they were packed. And, you know, she really brought attention as one of the performers at Captain King's Sex Fantasy Theater. But at some point, she's going to max out doing her gig. And there's only so far you can go. And that's when Wendy Orleans Williams walked into the theater. Now, before we get on with the story Let's talk about who this amazing woman was who held true to her principles and her values until her death. She was born in Rochester, New York, May 28, 1949, from a strict upper middle class family. Her father was a chemist for Kodak Eastman, and her mom was a stay-at-home mom. According to Wendy, they were cocktail zombies. Wendy was different. She was a shy, pretty, tall, skinny girl who spoke softly and was bullied for her bird-like figure and her hand-me-down clothes. But she was an animal lover, and she would bring home strays and wounded animals and heal them on her property. I like the fact that she was so comfortable with herself that she felt okay with sunbathing nude when she was a mere 15-year-old girl. She got arrested for it. It was probably one of her first of many run-ins with the law. But, you know, a 10th grader who says, man, I just want to lay out and feel the sun, and they come along and arrest her. And there's a period between when Wendy left home because she left home at like 16, 17 years where she traveled and she's given multiple accounts of what she did. And they sort of seem to vary a little bit. So there's a lot of uh, did she do it or didn't she? But what we do know is she showed up in New York City in 1976, renting a room at a seedy hotel in Times Square, trying to figure out what she was going to do next. She happened to be at Port Authority bus terminal when she grabbed 
a copy of Show Business Weekly off the floor. And as you've said many times, Ray, it all starts with what? An advertisement. <laughs> and Wendy O. Williams showed up at Rod Swenson's Captain King's Show World with her suitcase filled with her belongings and her gold Buddha under her arm. Now, this is before she starts filling out her resume with stuff like Candy Goes to Hollywood and being part of the Gong Show parody where she shot ping pong balls at her, her hoo-ha, right? This is all before that, right? Yes, this is all the stuff that got us to that point before. And Rod Swenson definitely uh, was a big player in this because he knew exactly how he wanted to design a band, but that comes a little later in the story. So Rod noticed that Wendy had this really wild energy about her. She had an attitude that projected both defiance and vulnerability. And at the same time, according to the Rialto report, her audition dance was to an instrumental of Foxy Lady with her voice on it. Rod had no idea what to do with Wendy, but he knew she was special. And he said this, I had no idea where to put her, but she made an impression on me. She was incredible in a way I couldn't define. She started performing and shooting plastic balls from between her legs. One of the Captain Kinks regulars said this about Wendy. Wendy was the strangest sex performer you'd ever see, and I saw a whole lot of them. She wasn't pretty in any conventional way, and the first time she appeared on stage, I feared for the worst because of what oh she projected. My. He said that she looked menacing and that she was not exactly what you wanted to see in a live sex show, but she had this utter conviction about her and you just could not take your eyes off of her. She was raunchy and hot. She prowled the performance area like an animal. She was sexy. She was dynamite. She was so real. And this dude remembered when an audience member went up to try to grope her once, she popped him between the eyes, knocked him out cold, continued to finish her show on on stage without batting an eye and when everybody left he was still there on the floor unconscious i picture her in the outfit she has on the cover of the metal priestess ep you know the tightly fit leather bit with her tits hanging out and covered but like by something steel with the mohawk and everything else just an incredible facade that she put on. She was a performer in every way, I guess. But this was a real side of her that she was letting out because of her deep beliefs in what she found wrong with society and what she found wrong with people. And the chemistry between Rod and Wendy was magic. Wendy said that he was the only person who never tried to change her. And Rod knew that Wendy was more than Captain Kinks. And he also got her into a couple of high society spreads in 78 and 79 as well before the plasmatics blew up and during all this time they were shooting videos and doing that and rod kept getting asked hey do you want to manage a band do you want to manage a band and he was like yeah i do but i'm a control freak i want to design the costumes i want to be involved in production i want to write the songs i want to pick the members i am a control freak and that's the only way i can do it only under the right circumstances will i do that and it may have been cool for Wendy because what I realized along the way in my research is how little she had to do with the writing of the songs. In 1977, Rod and Wendy were in a taxi. Wendy started singing a Bessie Smith song called Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl. Tired of being lonely. I had some good man 
And that's when the light went on with Rod. He said the sound was strange, guttural, effortless, snarling, and non-musical. But it had something special to it. He was like, I can build a punk band around Wendy at that time. And what else he liked about her? She had this androgynous look, an anarchic energy, and a pitch-perfect, angry Velton Xiaong. In the Rialto report, Rod said, creating a radical challenge to the conformity of the status quo became the compelling thing for me to do. Something way beyond anything anyone has ever seen before. And Wendy at the focal point. Rod Swenson really is their Svengali, their Malcolm McLaren, if you will, because he's got it all. He just needs to get all the pieces moving together, and he needs to add a few players too, doesn't he? So Roy Stewart, the first drummer for the Plasmatics, was at that time a manager at the sex shop, a struggling drummer, sometimes sex actor, and future erotic photographer. He ran the stage in roller skates sometimes and did crazy stuff because that's what Rod wanted. But he was also playing in a band with two guys named Michael David, the painter, and Richie Stotts, a guitarist, a six-foot-seven guitarist. Their band was called Numbers. They'd become a fixture in the early New York City punk rock scene, playing alongside bands like Television and Blondie and the Ramones and the Dead Boys. And at one point, because they worked together at the theater, Rod told Roy he was looking to form an art project, punk band behind Wendy O. Williams. Roy invited him to the Numbers show, and that's when the Plasmatics were formed. And then... The Plasmatics were introduced to the world on a hot and steamy Wednesday night in New York City at CBGB's. I got to tell you, man, you tell the story perfectly. And now I'm picturing six foot seven Richie Stotts. That's before you add the Mohawk trying to fit under the lights there at CBGB's in the middle of that punk swirling sweat with Wendy growling right next to him. Oh, it must have been unbelievable. Oh, yeah. She billed herself for that show as the American Dream Girl Gone Nightmare. And Richie Stotts, you know where he got the idea for the Mohawk from? Please tell me. Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, who the hell else are you talking to? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? He liked his mohawk and was like, that's what I'm going to do for stage. Marcus, this is all happening so quickly. They're on the verge of something. The Plasmatics on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll Punk Rock Month continuing. So 1979 was a wild year. Their debut at CBGB's was in July, and she also appeared in the movie Candy Goes to Hollywood. Another date that goes down in legendary history of the Plasmatics is November 16th, 1979. Rod booked the Plasmatics at the Palladium without a record deal. Sold it out. This is something that had never been done before. And this became legendary because it was the first time the Plasmatics blew a car up on stage. Now, them blowing up the car 
really caught the attention of mainstream people and rockers all around the country. There was in all the papers. Everybody was talking about it. The radio stations weren't really playing much in the way of punk rock. You know what I'm saying? But somehow we were all finding out that this band blew up a car on stage. Oh, yeah, that made a big noise. One critic wrote in a review that they thought they were actually going to die at that show. And <laughs> Billboard called the stunt the absolute limit of what can be accomplished in rock and roll theater. And the band and Rod had no idea whether this was going to work and people were going to get maimed or not. They had no idea. All they knew is what they were doing had to be precise and it had to work perfectly. And so they set the car up to do the explosion. And like 30, 40 seconds before the explosion, a minute before the explosion, I think Wendy o. Williams smashed all the windows out of the car so that the glass was inside and right. down below so that the glass didn't spray out and go everywhere. And Rod said that the explosion was so loud that he couldn't hear the band for about 15 seconds afterwards. And everything just shook for a few minutes afterwards. And it was absolutely bonkers. Wow. Wow. I'm just I'm picturing it in my head as you're talking. Think about it. This wasn't the only thing that they did. I think only on the right stages were they able to blow up cars and in the right venues and situations, but they still did the chainsaws of the guitar. That's right. And they still did the sledgehammer on the TV. None of the U.S. labels were going to touch Wendy O. Williams and the plasmatics. And then after reading about Seymour Stein, I'm surprised that he didn't even consider taking a chance on them. But he was also pretty busy. Yeah, he was busy signing all the other bands that they were playing That's with right. and around it. At CBGB. Right. <laughs> but Stiff Records had heard about them on the other side of the pond and flew somebody out to go check out their show. And the next day offered them a contract alongside Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello and the Damned and all those bands. Dude, at that point, the saying, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck, was taking on a whole new meaning. Oh, without a doubt. And the band's outrageous shock gave Wendy names like the Queen of Shock Rock dominatrix of decibels evil Knievel of rock yes he totally did crazy stuff that was my favorite was great <laughs> and because they were signed by stiff it really really built the enthusiasm on the other side of the pond and they were actually getting ready to head to the uk for a concert and to kick off the dates they held a show on Pier 62 in New York City, a free show where they were like, oh, five, 6,000 people will show up. Well, 10,000 people showed up for the event. And Wendy wow. was going to drive a car into the stage and blow up the equipment. And it worked. And it went off perfectly, but it cost the band their entire signing bonus from Stiff Records. They're like, that's okay. We did what we needed to do. And... Dante Bonuto of Kerrang! Magazine stated that the plasmatics were designed as a battering ram against the system from day one. He got that right 100%. Wendy told London they were going to give a cultural enema to the British people <laughs> for their sold-out show. And sure enough, the day of or the day before their show at the Hammersmith OD, in which was sold out, the British Council of Old Uptight White Men canceled the show. We just can't have this. It's the British Empire, after all. <laughs> Please remove this stick from my butt. Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, would you like some tea? Yes, I'd like some tea. Oh, my. Well, you know, 
they've had their own issues with punk rock by this point. And uh, the early British version of the PMRC was sharpening their knives for anybody who came down the pike that they didn't like. <laughs> you laugh because it's true. I am laughing because it's true. And boy, what do you say we take a quick break and come back with some more? I could use a cold one. And of course, we'll talk about those albums, all four of them on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Ah, springtime, Marcus, and the warmer weather means the doors are going to be open. People are going to be drinking those Crooked Eye brews outside, enjoying the atmosphere of the warmer weather as the weather turns towards the beautiful part of spring. But between here and there, they're keeping it rocking inside, too, at Crooked Eye, right there in the heart of Hatboro. And we thank them for their support for about a million years now on the Imbalance History Podcast. With the weather getting nice, that means they're going to line up some really beautiful spring type of beers for you and I to enjoy when you sit outside and enjoy the weather at Crooked Eye. They also have cocktails. They have food. So much more. It is a great place to hang out. And the entertainment is ongoing every night. There's something going on, including my vinyl night, the second Tuesday of every month. Grab some friends, come on round right there off of York Road in Montgomery. It's Crook and I Brewery, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Always a good time to be had and a new friend to be made. Thanks as always to Boldfoot Socks for sponsoring the podcast. And boy, oh boy, they've got some big doings and we've got Josh. Yeah, Josh ran a 100K race in the socks that he wore the year before, and they held up just as well the second time. And here's the man, Josh Law, on his latest adventure. The Aravapai 100 miler. All right, so we just hit mile 25, which means we are one-fourth of the way done. We just passed mile 40. Still feeling all right. Just crossed over the 80-mile barrier. Starting to get there. It's also starting to hurt a little bit. Let's go, Josh. Finish it out. Don't forget to go to boldfoot.com and check out the socks that they have. American grown, American sewn. And you know they're road tested by Josh himself. (laughs) They're your feet. Be bold. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Getting us back into it here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll on our final week of Punk Rock Month 2023. Talking about the plasmatics. Well, they've done a lot of things before getting to the point where Stiff is going to put him in the studio and start making records. But that's what happens next. Absolutely. And on October 2nd, 1980, the plasmatics made the world a better place, releasing their debut record, New Hope for the Wretched. Wendy O'Williams on vocals, Richie Stotts and Wes Beach on guitar, Gene Beauvoir on bass, Stu Deutsch on drums. It was produced by Rod Swenson and Jimmy Miller of Rolling Stones and other bands fame, but he was fired two days into the project because his heroin habit was so bad. And That's they what I heard it. too, yeah. And they brought in Ed Stasium, who's had a wonderful career, and at some point we will do an episode just on him and his incredible. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. He's incredible. And he also mixed that record. And Swenson and Stotts wrote most of that album. Those two seem to have a really good pairing as far as songwriting goes. And New Hope for the Wretched also includes a Bobby Darren cover called Dream Lover, which reached number 55 on the UK charts. And their debut album also hit number 55 on the charts. It was clear, though, that Swenson and Stotts had the best chemistry as far as writing the songs that were going to make this thing go. So that continues Rod's role as the Svengali, kind of creating and guiding the whole thing. If you listen to this album, I recommend you do it front to back like we always talk about because it's really important when you get to know these bands and you will feel the intensity of this record. It is heavy. It is aggressive. It is confrontational. It'll make you feel uncomfortable vocally and musically. And there are songs that stood out to me like Living Dead. Oh. 
test tube babies, concrete shoes and corruption, and they end the album with a big bang and butcher baby. Butcher baby, they're gonna put you away. It's the same. Butcher baby, you must be red. Butcher baby, mess your head. Butcher baby, go on at night. Butcher baby, turn on the lights. Oh yeah. They created the sound, and it created a sensation, Marcus. And you can't underestimate the move with switching out Jimmy Miller and bringing in Ed Stasium because this album could have been lost in the sauce, man. Yeah, can you imagine what had happened if Jimmy Miller stayed on? I can't even think to imagine what had happened. Great producer who really struggled with his addiction at times. Jagger wrote about it. And Stasium really is a steady Eddie kind of guy, man. He really knows how to get the best out of artists in the studio. Always has. And before we continue talking about the albums, you need to know that Wendy took her art so seriously. She ran six miles a day. She lifted weights. She ate an insanely healthy diet. She stopped smoking. She stopped drinking eventually. And when the band practiced, they did their practice as if they were doing a live show. And that intense was their practice. And when they were done, Wendy would be like, oh, that was great. Let's do it again. And they would have to do the live (laughs) set again. So she wasn't fucking around. She wanted this thing to be a certain way, and she achieved what she wanted. Now, since I saw the cover for the next album, I've been a little curious about the picture, right? Four people on horses in the desert with a cactus and mountains in the background. Doesn't really seem that unusual for an album cover idea, unless it's the fucking plasmatics. That album, Beyond the Valley of 1984, seems to be kind of a uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Stepford Wives, 1984 combination. Wow. Sort of yeah, weird. yeah, That's yeah, what I I'm taking from it. And it's a wild photograph with that big-ass cactus in the background like that. <laughs> They're in the middle of the desert, all metaled and punked out. It's beautiful, and it's so funny. Hey, you know what else is happening for this album? A new drummer. Yes, it's that Neil Smith from the Alice Cooper Band joining for drums on Beyond the Valley of 1984. There was an event that happened in January of 1981 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They started making politicians, police, parents, and other people afraid because of what they were doing. And a piece came out in the Milwaukee Sentinel after their January 16, 1981 show that said Miss Williams had exposed portions of her body during her act. And two days later at their show at the Palms Nightclub, undercover officers were dispatched and Wendy seemed to make sexual gestures on stage and what appeared to be soap lather or whipped cream on her upper torso so of course she was arrested and charged with obscenity charges for simulating masturbation with a sledgehammer and her microphone Wendy was also charged with battery of an officer and resisting arrest. 
Then Rob stepped in to defend her and was charged with obstruction and battery to police officers. But the reality of what happened was different. A police officer touched Wendy indecently and she slapped him. She was thrown to the ground and beaten by five officers before being held outside in the snow for a long time, as well as other crimes against her. Rod was grabbed for defending her and pulled behind a car and beaten unconscious with a nightstick. They both spent the night in the hospital and were released on $2,000 bail the following day. Fortunately for Wendy and Rod, a local photographer had taken pictures of Wendy's arrest, and one of the photos showed an officer with his hand on her neck, shoving her head in the snow while she appeared to be crying out in pain. All of the charges were eventually dropped, dismissed, or they were found not guilty. She countered with a lawsuit and lost. But the effect of this arrest was that many promoters would not book the plasmatics because of the publicity involved with it. Wow, man. Yeah, and those venues were afraid of community backlash and stuff like that. I was invited to go to their 1982 show at the Boulder Theater, and my parents were like, uh-uh, uh-uh, son, nope. Now, was this around the time that they were on the Tom Snyder show? He was great, by the way. He called them possibly the greatest punk rock band in the entire world, and that didn't exactly project from his you know, his image, his clothing and stuff when he was on TV, but that's what he called them when he had them on his show. Yeah, that might have been around that time. I don't remember seeing the Tom Snyder show in Denver as a kid, but I was so upset that I could not see that show because a couple of friends, older brothers and sisters, were into the plasmatics, and so we got to check out those records. And I love the fact that they were so different from all the other punk bands. And while I didn't fully get all of her message at that time and some of the things that she was about, you could feel that energy in the music, and you could feel feel it when she sang in may of 81 they release beyond the valley of 1984 with new drummer neil smith as you mentioned and again very aggressive intimidating very confrontational very uh making you feel uncomfortable again and if you listen to the beginning where the incantation rolls into master plan most incantations ray are peaceful and chill and are supposed to lift you up and make you relax and clear your head. I listened to this one in the dark with headphones on and it made me feel uncomfortable and agitated. It was exactly what this band was about. It's what they were made for, man. 
And then in October of 1981, the band released the EP Metal Priestess. It was produced by Dan Hartman and the band, and it was their final recording with Stiff Records. Bass player Gene Bouvois left the band. He was replaced by Chris Romanelli. And although he played on the two live songs on the EP, Chris Romanelli played on the rest of the album. And the tunes on there like Black Leather Monster, Lunacy, are great. On the cover, Wendy is looking extremely metal and scantily clad as well. That cover shot cemented her image right in the the wheelhouse there. And by the way, the sound that Dan Hartman got was really a good example of building off the sonic parameters of the first album. I guess they figured they had something there. He was trying to get it going again. Yeah, and again... Stotts and Swenson wrote some really good songs and the guitar really makes you feel uncomfortable throughout the EP and it's so characteristic of what the plasmatic sound is that it really agitates you and they really pull it off again and again and again but the albums don't sound the same which is even better. I mean I get the connective part about Dan Hartman and Capitol Records but how do they end up moving to that label for the coup d'etat, which kind of is a coup d'etat when you think about it. Absolutely. They didn't get the sales that they needed from Stiff Records, even though they had the notoriety and all that. They weren't getting the album sales, which surprised me. I figured more teens would be buying these albums than did. I know I was one of the teens that was buying these records. And then because of uh, Dan Hartman, Capitol Records got interested in them and sent them to Germany to record the coup d'etat record with Dieter Dirks. And he was coming off his successes with the Scorpions. The sound takes a little bit more of that formulaic metal sound. I don't know that I'm meaning that to sound in a bad way, but the Dieter sound was kind of added on to the plasmatic sound for the next record, right? And they changed bass players again. Junior Romanelli became the bass player and T.C. Tolliver played drums on this album, joining the band. And this album, because of Dieter Dirks really did a great job fusing the punk and the metal. And the album cover, again, is absolutely wild. Her on a tank with the rest of the band next to it. One of the repeating themes in this podcast, buddy, is that you never know where the crossroads will bring you to come across punk rock, meeting Dieter Dirks, and Michael Wagner, a young Michael Wagner, working as a, an engineer, a mixer, in the process as well. Of course, he's going to go on and have all kinds of his own successes once he learns from Dieter. After the release of Coup d'etat, 
and the low sales, Capital immediately cut ties with the Plasmatics and dropped them. And that was really tough for the band because the new wave or alternative music that was making noise at the time they got dropped was the new romantic movement. Bands like The Cure and Go West and Culture Club and Spando Ballet. So it was a completely different and softer sound. And with the last times were changing, right? And punk was kind of becoming out of vogue a little bit. It's been said before, highly political punk and music tends to burn bright quickly and then fade hard. And we're seeing that a lot in the hardcore music movement of the 80s. But all was not dead for the plasmatics as Kiss took them on the Creatures of the Night Tour on the Coup d'etat album. And that's when she met Gene Simmons, who offered to produce what would be her eventual solo record, and him and Paul and all the other guys on Kiss playing on it. But Coup d'etat really starts off with a bang, Put Your Love In Me, Ain't No Messing Around. And then the third song on the album, my favorite plasmatic song to this day, Rock and Roll. a beautiful cover of Motorhead's No Class on this record. cross-pollinating that a little bit, Marcus, leads to them singing together on Stand By Your Man, a duet.
But some other great tunes on that record, Mistress of Taboo, Path of Glory, Just Like on TV, and The Damned. And you might have seen The Damned video if you're a fan of Beavis and Butthead, because in that video, she drives a school bus through a wall of TVs, and Beavis and Butthead lose their fucking minds. I remember the video very well. Oh, my God. And that's a tribute to how long their fame lasted over this stuff because Beavis and Butthead wouldn't come along for a long time. And even though the tour with Kiss was good, the band went on hiatus, and that's when Gene Simmons produced Wendy's solo record, Wow. And he played bass under the name Reginald Van Helsing on that album. And Wes Beach also played on those solo albums, and he was the only Plasmatics member to play on all of the Plasmatics records and Wendy's solo records. Did they have a special relationship? Because I always saw as more her and Richie, but it seems like her and Wes had a better connection, maybe. I think they had a really good connection, and I also think that Wes's tone really made a difference in that discomfort and the aggressiveness of their sound. She goes on to record a couple solo albums there before they do 1987's Maggots, the record. Yeah, that was their final album, and it was recorded at Broccoli Rob Studios in New Jersey, might I add. I, uh, I love Broccoli <laughs> Rob, but not the studio, man. And this final album is an interesting one, sort of a thrash metal opera of sorts, and the central theme of the album is that it takes place 25 years in the future, which would be about 2012. And Did it, it happen? It did not happen, but the central theme of this album is that a group of scientists are trying to eliminate trash in the rivers and oceans and develop a breed of maggots designed to eat the garbage, and then when the trash is gone, the maggot dies. It's set 25 years in the future, and by the end of the record, the humans have become extinct and the maggots have taken over the planet. The end. Everybody have a nice day now. I'll tell you what, Swenson really got in there and worked it out on this one. It was kind of his idea working with Michael Ray, different people involved. But, you know, it's really where she was headed. This kind of thing is really her theatrical side, don't you think? The performance art was a huge aspect in her life. She stayed in shape her entire career to make sure she could do it at her top level. But she also battled with depression over the years, and she also was very big on a save the planet, save the animals mission. And she saw how we treat our planet and how we are destroying our planet, and it really upset her. And I think with the police beatings and some of the real negative publicity, she also got tired of uh, the shit and just wanted to live quietly and work on saving the planet her way. Do you think the world just ground her down? And just made her feel low when she starts getting to the point in her life 
where she can't take it anymore. She was really what you would call a hopeful revolutionary and thinking that their art could make a difference. Because if you look at the history of art for thousands of years, there's always been a political statement or side to art in every way, shape or form. And she and Rod really had the same message that they wanted to get across. And they cared a lot about the planet and they care a lot about animals and they care a lot about not hurting people. It's a mission for some people, Marcus, and it's not always one that ends pretty or the way that maybe you think it will. But among us on this little planet is a considerable number of people who really have no choice but to follow that vision, to follow what they feel inside. And far be it for anyone to tell that person or anybody else that they shouldn't follow those feelings. That's where great art comes from. It's where great things can come from. It's where a better world can come from. Absolutely. I know people get mad when you say it, but a lot of times the artists know what they're talking about in their art. And if you pay attention to their art, you can learn something about their perception and it might change yours. Learning is a good thing. Even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, it is still a good thing. And if you feel uncomfortable, you're learning well. You know what also makes me feel uncomfortable? What? Is reading about someone attempting and not completing suicide and that's what happened with wendy in 1993 she tried to hammer a knife into her chest but her sternum that piece of bone that's you know between your ribs kept it from happening and rod took her to a hospital and then there was another attempt in 97 yeah with an overdose of ephedrine marcus is the sad story and in your role as our public affairs director at the radio station you talk a lot about mental health and suicide prevention as much as you can, someone said on it, and she seemed to be, and she completed that event April 6, 1998, 25 years ago. Today, the day we're recording, 25 years ago, she was 48. And Rod knew it was going to happen, man. He knew for years they had talked about it, and oh, he knew God. that he couldn't stop it. All he could do was try to delay it. And during the first attempt, when she was hammering the knife into her chest, she changed her mind when the knife got stuck in her chest. Right. And she called the police. And then on April 6th, she walked out of the back of her home into the woods. She was feeding the squirrels, and she put a bag over her head so that Rod wouldn't have to see her head all blown up. And he later that day found a package she left for him that contained noodles he liked, a packet of seeds for growing garden greens, some oriental massage balm, and sealed letters she'd written. She'd left a series of suicidal notes in their home that confirmed she'd been contemplating taking her life for many years. The notes detailed her state of mind for those who wanted to know why she would take such a fatal step. The act of taking my own life, she said, is not something I am doing without a lot of thought. I don't believe that people should take their own lives without deep and thoughtful reflection over a considerable period of time. I do believe strongly, however, that the right time to do so is one of the most fundamental rights that anyone in a free society should have. For me, much of the world makes no sense, but my feelings about what I am doing ring loud and clear to an inner ear and a place where there is no self, only calm. Another note Swenson found in the house read simply, I die with a clean, warm feeling like the sun and water we shared together as when birds fly or fish swim. Love always, Wendy. I think that's where we need to end, brother. 
And we want to remind people that if you struggle, it's okay. And if you know someone who's struggling, don't tell them it's going to be okay or that they just got to keep pushing forward. No, call 988. That's the number here in the U.S. if you need assistance. And veterans, because we know you struggle a lot, it's 988 and immediately hit the number one to get straight to a veterans counselor. I have to do that every time we talk about someone completing suicide markers. I just do. Absolutely. It's very important. That number needs to be known by everybody. 988. That was the saddest part of the whole thing for me. Not that they'd faded, not that they didn't achieve the glory and the artistic fruition that they'd hoped for and all that stuff. No, they didn't end it so tragically that she had so much pain that she couldn't just live. That's the part that bothers me. She had some great musicians that played with her and having Wes and Richie Stotts alongside her for most of the time, I think made a big difference in their sound. And something that's wild to think about, a lot of the shit they sang about back then came true and is happening today as we speak. I'm not ready to call them punk rock visionaries with that thought, Marcus, but you know, they really were a lot better than what they achieved. And what's that saying you have about punk rock bands burning bright? They burn bright and fade fast. Yeah, it's true. Also, Wendy has had a huge influence on women since the day she took the stage. Even Debbie Harry said that she was a trailblazer, blew up cars and showed her tits on stage. Nowadays, everybody does it. She was... <laughs> That's right. She's a woman that... You should learn about and go check out their music. Some great music from that band. We always got to thank our sponsors, Boldfoot Socks and Crooked Eye Brewery, for their support here on the Imbalance History Podcast. What a great way to wrap up our third edition of Punk Rock Month here. The Plasmatics, Marcus. Oh, yeah. I don't know, man. We had three new episodes. And to wrap up with one of the most interesting characters and her band, Plasmatics and Wendy O. Williams to wrap it up. It's cool. I agree. And if you have any comments, if you have any feedback, if you have anything you want to share, if you've seen the Plasmatics live, had any run-ins with them, yes. please let us know. Imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. That's our email address. You can go to our website, imbalancedhistory.com, and there's a little form you can fill out that will send us a note as well. You can follow us on social media. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. That's going to do it for this episode on the Pantheon Podcast Network, a product of Dark Duck Media. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This has been The Plasmatics on The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.